This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood with Danny Lavery. With me in the studio this week is John Darnell, a songwriter, novelist, and leader of the American band The Mountain Goats. Dark in Here is the group's just-released latest collection of songs. John, welcome. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Hey, how's it going? It's going fantastic. I'm so sorry for our listeners. You're coming in at the tail end of a great conversation about how the chair behind me looks like a big saltine, which it's is like just a headboard, to- I believe. Yeah, headboard, a shared interest in old-timey guys uh, sitting with like barrels of saltines. And of course, John, as I say this, I realize that must literally be where the expression cracker barrel comes from, um, yes. which is old guys with saltines in a barrel. Yeah, well, I, I mean, or younger fellas with <laughs> people of any stripe can enjoy the barrel full of crackers outside the door of the establishment. <laughs> no like, barrier, no barrier, as long as you can reach in. I always sort of felt like saltines were underpraised as, you know, everybody wants whatever is, you know, the sweetest, most sort of value for money snack. But like, to me, I was like, no, saltines are great. These are like just the exact right amount of, like it's salt and plain starch. And that's that's about right for me. <laughs> so, and, and yeah, I would see these guys, the cartoons go, oh, that's the life of sitting in a chair outside or, or you're even standing balancing your elbow on the barrel itself from which you withdraw as many saltines as you like. Yeah. And, as I was saying, sure, in these days, there are many problems, systemic and general, that you probably wouldn't want to trade for today's things, but we should still have soda crackers in barrels. We should have those. I couldn't agree with you more. Weirdly, this feels like a folksy like counterpart to that uh, supposed like Oscar Wilde line about cigarettes, you know, where he says it's the perfect type of a perfect pleasure because it's exquisite and it leaves one unsatisfied. And I think that sums up my feelings about a saltine. Like a saltine is a perfect thing. And yet I have never eaten a saltine and felt satisfaction. Like I'm done. That was enough saltine. Every time I finish a saltine, my brain immediately thinks, you know, it'd be great, a saltine. Yeah, it's also hard to OD on them. You know, it's like I, I've eaten like half a sleeve at once, but like you, you sort of, you, you naturally stop, I think, because of the high sodium. And I can't agree with Wild, but I'm a reformed smoker, so I, I, I get very tiresome about that stuff. <laughs> I, I mean, as am I. And uh, part of the reason that I had to quit smoking was I could not stop at a half sleeve. I would smoke until I felt inhumanly sick. Uh, and then I would just feel like, well, now I have to wait this out until I need to smoke again. Uh, this is a terrible plan. How did you quit? What, what did you use just cold turkey or did you did you chew gum or what did you, what did you do? I quit about 20 different times. Yeah. Uh, this is the longest I've gone now. Um I've I've definitely done the gum and mostly that just meant that I got addicted to chewing nicotine gum all sure. day. You never read the easy way to quit smoking the Alan Carr book? I finally did that last summer and I actually listened to it on audiobook cuz someone oh, yeah. warned me like it's real repetitive. So I figured hearing it might be a little less dull than reading it over and over again. Yeah. And that that was pretty useful. I will say that wasn't the only thing, but that that did more, I think, to help than the the gum had. It's the one that worked for me, and I smoked for like 30 years, um, like two packs of Winston's, and, uh, and nor did I want to quit. A friend told me like, hey, I used this to quit smoking. I said, right, you know, nothing else has ever worked. So I was sort of like, you know, go ahead, do your best. But when he goes on about how it's not actually that strong a physical addiction, I think we sell ourselves this whole story about, 
you know, oh, it's really hard to quit. It's like a nicotine addiction actually isn't. The addiction is to the behavior, right? And if you know you're just breaking a behavior, that's a lot easier than if you think, oh, there's a chemical that I'm addicted to. You are, but it's not like an opiate addiction. You know, and I've dealt with those, and I can vouch now. It's like it's a lot harder to quit opiates than it is to quit cigarettes. Yeah, <laughs> you know. It was so interesting, too, because listening to it, one of the things that I sort of appreciated was he would sort of make it obvious at the beginning. Part of this book is a little bit like hypnosis. I'm just going to be repeating myself a lot. You're going to experience resistance to that. You're going to be totally aware that I'm doing that. You're going to think, I see what you're doing a mile off, and it's kind of going to work anyways. And I have no idea if the sort of science behind the the relative strength of the addiction is is true or not, but I definitely felt about halfway through that book, like the 900th time that that guy said something like smoking does not actually give you the pleasure that you think it does. It yeah. is in fact incredibly inconvenient and frustrating to you. It's not doing things for you and you'll actually be fine if you just like fight through this like one little twinge. And I I definitely felt myself thinking like, hey, this guy's right. Like, uh, you know, I've really, I've got my shit together. I'm bigger than this. Yeah, I'm lucky that I'm Catholic, I think, and when I have somebody with authority explaining something to me, I don't have the American urge to argue with him. Like, I'm glad to be in the presence of authority figure telling me what's up, you know? So, yeah, when somebody says that, I mean, this also makes me gullible. Like, I'm an easy mark if somebody's like, well, here's the case. I go, sure, why not? (laughs) You seem to have authority on this question, so that's good. Uh, I mean, I I have some skepticism, but once a person establishes a good faith, I'm like, okay, okay, you in, until you give me a reason not to trust you, I believe you, right? And, uh, and and yeah, it was like, I didn't even finish my last cigarette. I was shocked. I was like, wow. you know, yeah, it's like, oh, they, they, he said, go smoke your last one. I said, okay. And I smoked a half it. It wasn't doing anything for me, so I stopped. And I think, I think I've like been pissed off situations maybe twice since then, or maybe once pissed off and once raging drunk. I've had like half a smoke, but that was like 2009. All right. So the subject of our next letter is Mayor of the Unbelievers. I've been with my partner for over seven years since we were both 16. Back then, we were both very involved in church. Since then, I have grown more distant from Christianity and now consider myself agnostic. He has grown more distant from his church community, but definitely still thinks of himself as a Christian. I haven't really mentioned that I'm not anymore. On the one hand, it feels like it doesn't matter that much because if it hasn't come up through all these years, clearly our overall values are aligned. On the other hand, it feels weird not to explicitly say something. But come on, he already knows, right? Do I have to say anything here? Or can we just keep on as we are? I think it is brutally optimistic. What do we mean by years and years here? Yeah, I think meaning like over the seven years since seven we were 16. Yeah. Since they were 16, and that makes them now, I went to a school without a math requirement. Uh, 24? 22, 23. So they're 23 now. They've been together since we were 16. Mm-hmm. That's intense. Um, it is. And they're married or they're not married? It's it's it, They don't say that they were married. They say partner. So maybe living together. Okay. But um, um, yeah. Do you, by the way, I'm curious, you know, there's that statement, if it hasn't come up all these years together, clearly that means our overall values are aligned. I have to confess, I'm I'm immediately skeptical of if it hasn't come up, it must be because we just feel the same things. I would be inclined to think maybe that's true and maybe it hasn't come up because you've effectively like 
lied or given the wrong impression or because you both are trying to believe what you want to believe or because you both want to avoid a potentially pain. Like I could think of many quite bleak reasons that this would not have come up that have nothing to do with similar values. Does that seem too pessimistic to you? Right about yeah, where you're I mean, at? The thing is, I just frame it differently. I would say it hasn't come up, but we're making it work. You know, it's like it doesn't, it hasn't seemed to be a pertinent quantity in the relationship. It is to the author in some way. This is a thing that's on their mind, right? Mm-hmm. That they would like to share. So, I mean, to me, that answers the question. It's like, well, then if you have a thing that's on your mind, you should share it, you know? And then, uh, you know, I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath, my wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not, my wrath did grow, right? So, you can substitute anger and wrath for a lot of things. William Blake knows what he's talking about. You know, it's like, uh, he, uh, that's the thing. If there's something on your mind in a relationship, it's generally great to share, right? Even if it doesn't feel great, it's generally great to say what's on your mind, right? And, uh, and if it's not great to say what's on your mind in a relationship, then that's the real issue, right? It's like, why this is, this is bothering you, but you don't, well, I mean, the thing is like, I think some of this is like, I think people overthink that basic question is like, if you have something on your mind, you should share it. Don't ask yourself whether you have a right to share it. You've been with the person for seven years. You have a right to share whatever you want, you know, mm-hmm. um, with large or small, you know, I mean, and I also, I don't, we don't have any genders here, but I think I'm stating a lot of very cis male assumptions. Like if there's something on my mind, you can tell by listening to me talk, I'm just going to say it, right? Maybe mm-hmm. you've actually heard it four times before, but I'm probably going to say it anyway. Right. Uh, and that's, that's entitlement, right? Uh, but that's an entitlement everyone should share in, not one that the people who feel it should divest themselves of, right? Because um, you're entitled to share your feelings in a relationship. That's absolutely, you are entitled to do that. You're even entitled to share ugly ones and nasty ones that might, you know, be funky in the room. It's like, that's, that's part of the trust that we try to build with one another in a relationship, right? And to feel free to say what's in our minds, right? Um, questions of God are big questions, especially, you know, if you're growing apart in that way, that that feels very intense. I'm a believer and my wife is an atheist. I know she does not particularly care for all my God talk. You know, it's not really very exciting or fun for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some anxiety over like my son is very interested in Bible stories. I think my wife is like, you know, why these stories, if you don't, if you, you know, if you look at them objectively, uh, they're kind of toxic. <laughs> it's like, and that's real too. I get that. You know, I'm, I'm of the belief that that no story has really an absolute value. So you can take any story to not to prove anything you want, but certainly the most Bible stories can be presented in a way that's at least, you know, a great, a great springboard for thought and introspection and, and action, sometimes good action, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, hugely like I, I, I myself am a person with a pretty fraught and, and often frustrated relationship to the the religion that I grew up in, but I, I continue to love thinking about and telling and retelling uh Bible stories in part because they are the stories that I know best. And just also, as as you say, like, you know, there's quite a few of them that I, I think like good or bad or right or wrong don't really enter into it. Like there's a story where Jesus fights a tree. There's a, a story where Jonah fights a vine. Um, there's, there's interesting like vegetal hostility throughout the book. And I, I, that's really interesting for, for anyone who cares to think about it, I think. Yeah, no, all that stuff is super interesting, but, but on the, on the, on, to the basic question, I mean, this is a person who's feeling like I don't, I don't. W- w- is it the author whose whose faith has flagged more, or is it is it their partner? So the author is saying, you know, we used to be really involved in our church communities when we were sixteen. They were I am both now really an involved in their church. I wish I knew which church this was. 
I do too. It makes yeah, a difference. You know, it makes a big difference. It's like, were you snake handlers or were you Catholics? You know, it's- Sadly, not enough overlap there. Yeah, but um, I now think of myself as agnostic. I'm pretty sure he still thinks of himself as a Christian, although we haven't really discussed it explicitly. Um, and, and so I think my guess there is that at least some of the fear is like, it's only okay if we don't talk about it. And it's going to be like looking down if you're Wiley Coyote. Like as long as you run off the cliff, if you don't look down at your feet, you can still walk and do normal things. But as soon as you look down and see the canyon below you, you start to fall. Um, and, and I think that's kind of the anxiety here. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it does seem like, you know, like this really is one that's like where you should bring it up. Right? Absolutely. If it's on your mind and you're in a healthy relationship, then there's no reason not to bring this up, I don't think. Uh, I mean, I can, because I'm a storyteller, I can imagine funny situations in which you say, well, you know, I I still believe in God and I kind of miss church, but I think I feel differently about it now. And then your partner mm-hmm. says, oh, well, you know, I've actually, I was hoping you would say something about this because, you know, I, 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 I worship the primordial Lord Isnop, right? And Isnop lives in the forest and that's where I'm going on Fridays and not to the gaming group I was telling you about. I've been waiting for an opening here. In the eighth old Henry years. version. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I love this idea. But that's not what's going to happen, right? It's like, what's all that's going to happen is a conversation. Um, I mean, I think, here's one thing I do wonder. When a relationship is long, Heavy conversations sometimes are one of the things you get to say goodbye to in your comfort, mm. you know, like you, you don't have to have to be bothering yourself with heavy conversations after a while, you know, unless unless problems arise. And for many people, I think it's like that's a plus It's like, why? Why do I want to get all heavy when I could hang, you know, when I could just have a good time? So if you've been enjoying a long state of not having anything heavy to deal with, you know, well, that would be a big one, especially if they're thinking about having children. A lot of people have a lot of anxiety around what we're we going to do. You know, what will we tell the kids about this? You have the same anxiety about Santa Claus. You know, it's like, it, it, it's a big, it seems very much from the standpoint of 2021. Wait, so for a number of years, we're going to tell our kids a lie on purpose because it's fun. And then they'll find out from their friends or something that we've been lying, but they will have had fun. So that's good. Right. Yeah. And everyone's weird, kind of joining in on the lie. Yeah. I mean, it's weird. It's weird. I mean, the thing is, but the reason it's good, I mean, the thing is, the benefit for it is less for the children, I think, than for the parents whose hearts just swell when the child believes in Santa, right? His hearts just <laughs> swell on Christmas morning when the stockings are full of candy and it's magic, right? And, and you want, we all want magic to exist in some way. And it does for children if you do that stuff and you get to, you, you get to have them believe in magic for a while. You know, even though mm-hmm. then they have to have it taken away from them. So did you do them a favor? I say yes. I, I, you know, to me, if you ever believed in magic at all, even then when you don't later, you still carry the possibility in your life. And so, you know, so that's still a net good as far as I'm concerned. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, you know, I think here the fear is like, you know, will I puncture the magic if I acknowledge the the reality? And I think. Uh, I, I think that's not the case. Um, you don't have to say anything in the sense that there's not, I think, an ethical obligation to disclose to a romantic partner the like inner state of your heart as it is disposed towards the possibility of God or religion. Like, I, I really believe in a right to privacy there. Um, you can share it, and it sounds like you would like to share it. Um, and, and I think what you have to say to your partner is pretty um, easy to talk about, which is just, I feel a little weird saying this, Um I think it might already feel obvious since we both don't go to church the way that we used to. Um, I think I am now agnostic. I'm really okay with the fact that you, I think, consider yourself a Christian, but I may be wrong, in, in which case, please like let me know if that's changed for you too. It seems like we're both pretty comfortable not going to church very often. That works for me. 
I'm happy to respect your religious beliefs as long as you can respect my agnosticism. Is that the lay of the land? Do I have that right? And, you know, you can frame that as a pretty innocuous question. You don't have to bring it as this like heavy confession of, do you still accept me now that I'm like potentially like fallen? Yeah, I do wonder if there's not something a little deeper uh, in this question insofar as like I was in a relationship for five years with somebody who I was in love with. But then when I went back to college, you know, interests of mine that had been sort of way on the back burner while I was nursing, interests in literature and big questions and politics and stuff came to the forefront. Well, the person I've been dating, that wasn't none of that was stuff that was interesting to them. They were looking forward to. Uh, starting a family as soon as possible. And I was talking about, I want to go to grad school. I'm not going to have any kids if I'm in grad school, you know. And, um, and we grew apart, right? That's what it was, is that our, you know, our our visions had been aligned at one point. And when those visions grow apart, then, you know, then you have to ask yourself a hard question. And the hard question is, is this the person I want to continue sharing my vision with? Or, you know, or, 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 or are we no longer aligned in the work? And I wonder if there's not something like, there's not more to the story. I'm certain there's more to the story, you know? And so, uh, so yeah. Yeah. It is frustrating that so often in life, the more important someone else becomes to us, uh, the more difficult, um, necessary conversations can feel, um, the sort of disagreement one might comfortably have with an acquaintance or a friend when it becomes the person that you have been in love with for the last seven years suddenly feels like there is too much at stake. Um, and, and so there can paradoxically be this kind of veil of silence that descends around really important things about somebody that you would ideally like to share, you know, the inner workings of your heart with. Maybe not every minute of the day. You do want to sometimes just be able to sit around and, and relax together. But um, I, I think at least for a lot of people, there's, there's a hope of a sort of ongoing, casual, but deep intimacy that they will be able to share with a partner. And I, I do think this letter writer is hoping for that. And I, I hope that for them too. I would love um, to talk to you a little bit. I know we've already gotten into Blake and Steinbeck, um, but your your new album is out, Dark in Here. And once again, you've 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 had lots of um, biblical references threaded throughout. Some of them sort of paired with other biblical references, and in, in something that uh, I I really appreciated. There's a bit where a, a reference from Jonah turns into Abraham arguing with God about uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, so I'm ex- yeah, I'm excited for you for you to 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 be here. I I loved that element of it. I always love that element uh, of your music and um, found it really thrilling. Thank you. Yeah, especially um, I was going through some of the other liner notes. I don't know if all of you were reading through Moby Dick or just some of you, but um, that context of Moby Dick and the Book of Jonah uh, going into this album was fabulous. So I think I think Peter did Moby Dick in the last few years. I haven't done it since. It was one of those. Uh, I read it during the summer between college years because I noticed that it wasn't going to be on our syllabus. I was going to be able to graduate in English without having read Moby Dick. I'm a believer in like, whether you agree with the canon or not, I want to know it before I leave the English program. I don't want to write my own canon. Uh, I, I want to know what the, what the parts are that, you know, and then I can argue with their presence there. But, you know, it's like, I, I sort of feel like if I'm going to graduate English literature, I need to have read Moby Dick. So I read it by myself. Uh, I really loved it. Um, and I'm not sure if the whole 19th century for me is is sort of, it's not as good as the 18th for me. I'm an 18th century. I find the 18th much more interesting. Um, 
and but the American transcendentalists are kind of they're super weird. <laughs> they're very, very weird. I mean, there's like so so much submerged and barely in the case of Moby Dick, barely submerged homoeroticism. You know, it's just like just absolutely bleeding from every page. You know, and 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 uh, and giant questions. This whole desire to frame giant questions in every single thing. You know, it's very interesting uh, and fun to me. I found it a very fun read back then. I'm not sure. Uh, it's been a while since I tried to Melville. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think Peter did the same thing I did, but more recently when I should read Moby Dick. You know, so. <laughs> I love though. Um, I often have such a difficult, like scattershot relationship to 18th century literature. Like I will occasionally seize on something that I'm just absolutely nuts about. And I just inhale, like I felt that way about Pamela. Um, and then there'll be That's other ones. 18th, like, isn't it right? 18th. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going back to the 18th with you now. Uh, and then like Evelina, like I just, after the like 19th letter home about another night at the opera, I just had to put it down for a while, but it does seem like one of the things that characterizes a lot of 18th century literature is just, um, I'm often surprised by what the author thinks is like important for the reader to know. Like there's often details or digressions that just feel really, really unexpected and unpredictable. And that's, that's something I do really appreciate about that century. You know, it's actually the digressive quality of 18th century literature that endears it to me most. That it really does feel like the whole concept of the book is still uh, is still sort of being formed in, in the English mind. You know, and 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 a lot of these books they have, you know, there's a comic section, and then there's the very dramatic section, and then as is the case dating back to you know the 14th century at the latest, you know, then it'll usually end with some entreaty. It'll turn to God by the end, but it's like they're sort of trying to make sure the book does all the things a piece of entertainment might do. Right. They don't they're not they're not as as uh, uh, intensely directed as things become by the 19th century. But they also the question of English manners and Victorian manners, all that stuff just changes literature so much. That's why, like, and I make myself unpopular. I cannot read Jane Austen. I cannot read people who are talking around everything all day. You know, it's like I want to. I know people who who take a lot of pleasure in the fact that Jane Austen is in fact commenting on that. Like that's what she's commenting on. But I, I mean, for the 18th century or people, it's like, they seem like they're barely in control of their urges, you know, in the 18th century. There's, they're very, it's very wild, you know, and, uh, and the 19th century is so repressed. Um, and that repression doesn't, I, I don't, I don't feel the ache of the repression. I just feel angry at the people who are, who, who are putting up, having to put up with it, you know, so it's such a you know it's such an interesting time in literature too you think of it at the start of the century you know you could go from one town to the next and they would have a completely different set of like time and it's standardized by the end of the century at the end of the century you hop on a train you go anywhere in the uk and you know what time it is and and everything is set according to greenwich mean time and the 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 way that that transforms people's thinking about what does it mean to tell a story and what does it mean to write a novel and who are the you know, who will I focus on and, and, and how much time will I allot them just shifts radically. I do, I do think I, I will say I have often found Jane Austen to be a very direct writer, which is not to say that she is like plain spoken or telling it like it is, but I, I don't find her circuitous, but, um, well, I mean, it's, it's the social settings though. It's not her. It's like the social settings that she's writing about. I just, I see the level of my anxiety, like goes through the ceiling about this sort of stuff. People feeling you know, the writer I'm into right now is named Ivy Compton Burnett, right? Mm-hmm. Um, have you read any of her books? No, tell me a bit about it. So she wrote a lot of books, uh, over 20 of them, I think. They all begin at breakfast, right? And they Ooh. all concern English families. Um, 
she does not have a lot of faith in the English family. In fact, I think she has an utter dread of the English family. They're almost entirely, they consist almost entirely of dialogue. There's almost no narrative writing in them. Um, and, uh, and you wonder if she's working out some of it, but you don't wonder. You feel confident mm. by the time you've read two of them. She's working out some issues with these things. The fact that they all begin the same way and they all concern the same sort of family. And, you know, there, there, there's a very, um, ritualistic quality to, to doing this, you know, to, to her project. But, but within that, there's these, they have these dialogues that are quite cutting and it's, they, they take place usually in the 18th, in the 19th century. And she seems to really be saying that was a terrible time to be a woman and to be a person. <laughs> it's like, it's really, they're very claustrophobic books in a, in a way. People behave just abominably. Um, uh, like in, in one of them, uh, one of the big scenes is where there's a bridge that's out and the father who is cruel, who's a bad father, right? Uh, heads on down the road to visit somebody and his children both know that the bridge is out, but they don't tell him. They see him going down the road, right? And he just happens very fortunately to, to be checked by somebody. I forget when he comes home, right? Uh, he thinks my children tried to send me to my doom. The children, meanwhile, as soon as he marks, is out of their sight, goes, Oh my God, dad's going to fall off the bridge. We should have told him. And like, and they, and they go through this long dark night of the soul thing about like, did we actually want him to die? Do we want him like this? So, you know, uh, and that, that stuff, I think, is stuff that, like, in in most 19th century novels, you would have to infer, right? Now, it's mm. all in there, right? And I think it's the genius of a lot of them. I think Dickens would be the guy who'd be probably framing, letting you have a little more of the action, you know? Um, but I struggle with the 19th century. I struggle the, 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 in, in Compton Burnett, the same manners that give me terrible anxiety in, um, in Jane Austen and in um, Butler, you know, even though I like saying about Butler a lot, but, but you know, it's just, it's like my, my mom dated somebody for a long time who would stand up whenever somebody new came into the room, right? Anybody comes into the room and it was, you went to use the bathroom, you'd stand up, right? And after a while, that'll give you a nervous tick. <laughs> it's like, and all those books give me that nervous tick. <laughs> That is remarkable because I, I also had a relative who I, I think probably not for quite the same reasons, but her anxiety was such that if you got up to go to the bathroom, she would stand up to hug you and to ask you where you were going. Um, and and I, I experienced a similar tick-like response to that. Um, but this is fabulous. I, I can't believe I haven't heard of her. This feels like the perfect midpoint for like difficult English families and, and also uh, just deep, deep hostility and repression, like a perfect midpoint between the, the like, uh, Patrick Melrose novels, um, and, and like Barbara Pym, which is often yeah, a sweet yeah. spot. So yeah, the thing about Compton Burnett is you have to, you have to figure out a lot of stuff because it's all dialogue. These, they're not, you, you have to really figure out some stuff that happened and, and it requires incredibly close reading sometimes, right. Um, in the, in the one I just finished, uh, a house in its head, um, you know, there's a gigantic plot point that you, she won't even give you a crumb for it. It's like, you know, you have to figure it out. And it's, uh, which I really love just you know, from a, you know, it's like, because what she's saying about life, what she does, that, she's like, yeah, there's a lot of big plot points that nobody's going to tell you. <laughs> so. I, uh, I'm also very, very keen to, to start with pastors and masters because that's just a fabulous title. 
Yeah, I haven't done pastors and masters, but they all have that, that also the same, a man and his maidservant, a house and his head, pastors and masters, they almost all have that kind of title. There's something profoundly ritualistic, again, about the way she's writing books. There's a sense in which she's writing the same book over and over again. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, most people I've talked to who got into her before I did are like, yeah, no, you reach a point where I've done five, I think I'm good. <laughs> so I'm not going to be able to talk to Burnett books. I just love that they all start at breakfast. This is incredible to me. But there's so much you can do within that kind of like tightly constrained uh, set of limits. I I, I often find that my favorite types of writers are ones who have found a formula that they can then go on to tweak and do a lot of really different types of um, things with. Check check her out. See see how it registers with you. I I definitely, definitely will. She is uh, going right, right up there on the top of the list. Um, so I'm very, very grateful to you for that. I, I, no, in pleasure. return, I will try to suggest Nancy Mitford, although I'm sure if you're on Compton Burnett, you have already blown through uh, Love in a Cold Climate. So No, no, uh, I haven't. I, I'm, my reading is very spotty. I don't, I don't, uh, I, I'm all over the place. Like right now I'm reading that book, Kin, uh, which I'm hoping to finish faster than, than history would suggest I'm going to finish it. But do you know about this book? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's really good. Uh, but I mean, it's long. It's a big, big book. So, like, I just was out of town. I had first heard of it because of that um, screenshot that you had posted on Twitter a while back of that wonderful quote about dusting that uh, just really struck me. I, I think the the line that um, I wrote down was dusting requires either sheer courage or the complete absence of a soul. It's right. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's extremely good. Um, it's extremely good. Uh, I was just out of town with the family for three days. It's not the sort of book you could really sneak a minute or so with. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going to have to plunge back into it. I really need to be like hitting benchmarks of reading it because it's like 900 pages long. So you don't want to lose more than a, a few days with it. But but it's it's a it's a big accomplishment. It's really um it's really something. Yeah, and, and I think especially with that kind of book, that if it does get me into thinking about my relationship between like housework and any of the sort of like various acts of self-replication that are necessary to get one through the day um, that might take me out for the next seven or eight hours if I start thinking too much about, you know, why does the dishwasher fill me with despair? Are you tidy? Uh, I, I have a complicated relationship to tidiness. Is there's this what your room little... would look like if I wasn't looking at it? <laughs> there, there's <laughs> often a little engine in the back of my head that's going like, why aren't you picking that up? Um, and so I sometimes give into that voice and do that obsessively. And I sometimes tell that voice to shut up. And then I think I am surrounded by filth and degradation and I am an old milk bottle and I wish I lived on the moon. So those are, those are my two modes when it comes to neatness. What about you? Oh, me, I'm a slob. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm constantly battling against my slob tendencies. I, I wish I, I wish I had not become a person who can tolerate as much disorder as I can tolerate. I also know that like, when I overcome some of my slobbiness, I, I'm happier, right? It's like it's happier to have a more order, but, but I'm a hoarder, not a, not a real hoarder. It's not like the stuff bursting from the door, uh, although I think my wife fears that it's only a matter of time. But because I just I, I get stuff that I want. I am comforted by my possessions. Um, yeah. But I think there's I am. Su- there's such a pleasure to things. Yeah, but they stop when you reach a level of accumulation, you know, depending on what the possessions are, if they're books or records, it's like, you know, the room where I keep a lot of books and records you can't get around in there now, right? And most of the books will get ignored forever because they're behind other books, right? That they don't, it's like, and I don't think you can have too many books. Like that's the one that'll be the last, last to, to start thinning, you know, but, 
but yeah, I'm not, I mean, I don't organize my books or my records. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm not an organized person. Um, I have, I have, but, but I also have weird, <laughs> some weird OCD tendencies that would fold nicely into the, the habits of a very organized person. You know, I can't tolerate a door to be open. All doors need to be closed for me. Um, you know, I, uh, I, water on the floor. I don't want any, I really can't deal with water on the floor, especially oh, in yeah. the season where I might be barefoot. I can't. Oh yeah. And like, you know, again, and I'm a Pisces, <laughs> 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 but, uh, but no, it's like, and I love water. I love to swim. I love all this stuff, but, but like, Somehow, water on the floor is like Joan Didion's cans in the sink. Is like the water's on the floor. It seems like something's going to go wrong. You know? <laughs> so. Oh yeah, yeah. No, if if there's water on the kitchen floor, especially, I just think like my immediately thought is I might as well be dead. Yeah, I this don't is... like it, and I and like I have to end my runs with a right turn. I have all these things, you know, that usually are they begin as opt in weird habits, and then they very quickly become no, no, you got to do this thing. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you know, or the totems and pillars it. that hold life up. Yeah, yeah. So. So the, all those things I think usually belong to people who are tidier than I. Um, but the thing is, I, I am. When, when I became a nurse in my twenties, I, I learned, and the things I hate to say this because like this was, I'm, I'm uh, I, I don't, uh, I'm glad if anybody's helped by any philosopher. But the guy who's into telling you to make your bed, I'm generally not into that guy. <laughs> you know, but but that is a good point. It's like if you if if you set one thing a day to do to take care of your environment whether it's loading the dishwasher or making your bed or whatever, you're doing yourself a solid. I mean, all that means is do yourself a little favor every day in the world that surrounds you and you'll feel better about yourself. For me, making the bed is a good one. I like to make the bed. I'm good at it. I put hospital corners on it and then the bed's made. Then you feel good, you know? Um, And then if you're in my house, then your nine-year-old sees that it's made and goes, oh, cool. I love nothing better than a made bed. And <laughs> you find them and they go, wow. <laughs> and certainly, certainly my quarrel with the make your bed guy is not the part where he tells people to make their beds. That part is completely yeah, innocuous. But the thing is, we, it, I have a funny relationship to this. So we live in a time when so many people are expressing such terrible opinions, which are often of vital importance to people we care deeply about, that we want to make sure we're not aligning ourselves with those people. Right now, that can reach a really toxic point. If a if a if a bad per well, you know, there's the famous onion or reductress. I forget which one it is. You know, heartbreaking. The person, you know, the worst person you in the world the has made an excellent point. Right. So, yeah. And, yeah. But but the thing is, I I think we're in a time when often is like if I say, well, you know, so and so says this, they say, well, that guy is terrible. I, say, I know, but you know, it doesn't really matter who said a good thing most of the time. You know, but mm-hmm. in 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 that case, is like when we're talking about, you know limiting the development of our understanding of gender identity and stuff like that. These are important questions that we made unimaginable headway on in 30 years. And we really don't need regressive people uh, trying to, trying to uh, uh, put the genie back in the bottle because the genie is magic. <laughs> the genie shares good things with all the people of the earth. So, uh, so, you know, so, so you don't want to, it's like, you want to be very careful with those guys. I mean, especially with that guy, with his raw meat stuff. <laughs> I don't understand it. <laughs> Well, this actually kind of perfectly takes us into our our lightning round question, uh, because we were talking earlier about uh, objects and clutter and joy and pleasure and how much space uh, one wants to give to one's things and to one's life. And we have a new section on the show, which is just the lightning round, where uh, you and I each get, get one struck minute. by lightning and then report on the experience. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. I want to know what it felt like um, to the best of your ability. It's going to be awesome. It's just mostly going to be moaning, but interesting, you know, with <laughs> choral patterns shot through it. We've been legends uh, it's in just, the podcast industry. Legends. Yeah. Yeah. We take this show very seriously. Um, we died for you. <laughs> <laughs> please enjoy. Like Jesus um, so, Christ. <laughs> But but even more interestingly, yeah. we did him like, one better. Christ, but dumber. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will read this letter uh, before I draw you into any further blasphemy. And then you'll have one minute to answer it to the best of your ability in whatever aspect you think is the most interesting or, or helpful or useful. And then I will follow suit. Um, and then hopefully we will have been a little bit helpful today. The subject is loving our little home. My partner and I just bought our first house. It's a small two-bedroom place and my partner keeps apologizing to me about the size, even though I love it. He's hung up on how we will likely never be, quote, middle class between student debt and a mortgage. His parents are well off with old money. I'm from a large, low-income family. I know we have different perspectives and backgrounds, but I'm tired of listening to him compare our life with what others have. I want to enjoy the fact that we have our own house. It's not that small. All our furniture fits in it. To me, a large house just means more room to collect stuff I don't need that will likely burden my family after my death. How do I get my partner to stop and enjoy what he has, or at least stop pretending that he doesn't like this house for my benefit? All right, so that's the question. Uh, you've got one minute on the clock, uh, and I'm going to start that clock now. Okay, so there's a lot of questions that can go into how much house you actually need. One of the big questions is, do you need more house that you can fit you and your stuff into? I think a lot of people are doing a lot of work on this question right now and saying, look, there's no reason to have an extra bedroom for your television or whatever. And the more space you take up, that's the less space somebody else can have. And that's a really important question, especially in cities where we want to be living next to each other and be, uh, you know, be living high density. And there's a lot of important thinkers who think that high density is very important. And I, they tend to be smarter than me. So I tend to accept their word for it. At the same time, I am a person who likes to have a lot of space. I really don't want to be around other people. When people say, oh, you can live with next door to some other people that become your friends. I don't want friends, right? I want, I want space. I want to be able to move my elbows. Uh, I have all the friends that I need, as uh, Joan Armour Trading said in her song, Love and Affection. Um, and so so when I think about this, I think, was this person like me? Is this person who said, look, if I had a little space to wander into the next room, that would be nice. I also used to do very well cramming into short spaces. And when I travel on a tour bus, you know, the uh, the, the place that you sleep in is like a little cabin that it's like, it's like a coffin, you know. I like to lie in there, but where do I want to sleep? In the back lounge, I need to have a little bit of air. And so these are all questions you have to consider. I think you probably want another bedroom at the end of the day. Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. I'm putting a minute on the clock for myself and I'm going to go now. Uh, the sort of shit stirrer in me, letter writer, wants to suggest that you and your husband sit down uh, at Pew Research uh, because they have actually a calculator on their site to find out if you live in a middle class household, depending on your state, metropolitan era, area, uh, income before taxes and people in your household. And uh, because I think sometimes people say middle class when they mean something like whatever my idea of enough money is, or I will feel financially secure, which is often a very different sense of how much money you have or how much debt you carry or how much income you bring in every year. So maybe part of the question here is, what does he mean when he says middle class? What do you mean when you say middle class? Uh, what does he mean by comfortable? What do you mean by comfortable? I think it's totally fine to say, I don't want you to apologize on my behalf because I love this house. And in fact, I'm frustrated with your uh, frequent comparisons. Um, but beyond that, you just have to kind of figure out what are your terms and where do you disagree? Uh, 
That's it. One minute. I'm done. <laughs> Whew. God, that's stressful. I don't know why I introduced this segment. Well, I, you know, we should talk about that. <laughs> should, why, why, why did you do something to yourself to stress you out? Danny? Uh, I, th- I think part of it was a sense of otherwise I'll tend to go quite long. I have a very strange relationship to time where either I feel like I just have buckets of it and I can lounge around and hand it out at, at, at will, or I just feel like I am like Catherine O'Hara running through the airport towards the end of Home Alone, just like, well, That's you know. an interesting thing because these are advice questions, right? And the best advice, if we're going to give advice, and I have to say, I generally don't believe in advice. You know, I believe in mm-hmm. hearing people and then and say, wow, this sounds pretty heavy, you know, it's like, maybe share what you would do, you know, but yeah. this, the, it's, it's really super basic. Like, I'm not living your life. All I can say is how I imagine I would behave in your shoes. I mean, this is why we have to be extra kind to each other is because I don't know what your life mm. is like. So I can't tell you what the best decision for you is. All I can do is, you know, imagine myself in that, but that's always going to be an act of real imagination because my own circumstances are different. Um, but all that said, I think when we're giving advice, it should be something we're going to be able to boil down to a simple direction. Get a bigger yeah. house. You know, now be happy with where you are. Like, and but people don't want to do that. It sounds, you know, it sounds too too authoritarian, you know, but uh, or too arrogant. But I think most people who are asking for advice, you do them a favor if you say, "You, you want my advice? This is my advice," and 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 do it, you know, uh, <coughs> doc worker style, <laughs> and say, you know, yeah. Ditch, ditch the dog, get a cat. You know, <laughs> you should get a cat. Dogs are lovely. I wish I could have a dog. Yeah. And I think there's value too. Sometimes it just helps to say, here was what I would do in your position so that the person can receive a sense of clarity of like, oh, I hate that idea. Thank you for that suggestion because it helped me realize I actually feel quite strongly in a different direction. And yeah. I think the other thing really is, it's fun. always good if you can find something. So here's the thing. I lived in a small house and thought I was perfectly happy in the small house. And then I happened to move to a bigger one. Right. And the second I got there, I was like, oh my God. I, I, I no longer have to cram all this stuff. In, or conversely, you can say, I moved to a smaller house and it helped me cure my... If I moved to a smaller house, I would learn how to throw some of my stuff away. Right? I know this because we used to live in a smaller house, right? And we moved in a big big one. I'm me. I'm going to start putting stuff in all those spaces. Right? We have a basement. Guess what's in that basement? A, 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 a green milk carton full of press clippings that are unsorted, that are still in the magazines that... They need to be clipped from and placed into a scrapbook, and it's never going to happen. That green thing is going to be there on the day I die. And when my children have to throw it away, they're going to say, why did you make me throw this away, Dad, and kick my coffin? And from inside, I will hit it with my fist and say, it's just the way God made me. And that'll be the end of the movie. That's a very good end of the movie. And you will, of course, have left them abruptly because you were struck by lightning. Exactly, because I was on the roof (laughs) daring God to come and get me. I hesitate to give you advice, but I do hope that you know there are professional scrapbookers. There are people you can hire who will come into your home and you can hand them a pile of stuff and say, I don't know what's in here, but some of it's important and I would like it arranged attractively. Here's some money and they will do it for you. You lost me at people who will come into your home. <laughs> That's absolutely fair. But this is what's funny about where we're at in the pandemic is like, like I now am starving for company. I now want company. I want human company bodies in the same room as me, right? But it took me way longer to get there than it took most people. <laughs> it's like for the first few months, first six months, me and John Worcester would talk, it's like, hey, this is kind of, you know, kind of cool to be able to stay at home and not see people. <laughs> it's, like, 
and you know, so many people were like, you know, oh, I miss my friends. Like, but you know, I mean, I can text my friends. It's cool. <laughs> now I, I did, I did reach my limit, you know, and I actually now having seen a friend one um, or two uh, in the past month is like, there's a whole re-entry as its own challenges for those of us who, you know, who learned what our limit was on that question. Well, John, I am immensely grateful that you stepped into my home, however phantasmagorically, uh, this afternoon. Um, and I, I am just really, really glad that I got a chance to um, uh, offer some suggestions with you today. Uh, and and I hope that the rest of your afternoon is just a fabulous one. Thank you You're so much. You're fun to talk to. You have improved my day. I was in a bad mood when I got here. I'm in a better mood now. I, I am so glad, if, if if only to provide a, a buffer for a better evening than there was uh, earlier today. I'm going back home to the work I was doing. It's just <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I got sober myself back in 2013. And one of the things that I really appreciated about addiction was it always gave you a manageable crisis for the day. Like it would just (laughs) really simplify your problems. Like my problem today is to fix whatever I did yesterday to streamline my getting whatever I need tonight. That's it. Whether that means finding out where my car is or trying to lie to someone until they lend me some money or apologizing for something that I don't think I should feel sorry for, but I, I just don't care about lying in any direction, you know. You, yeah, you've got gives your you a hobby. roadmap. <laughs> yeah. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.